You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. There is a castle in Scotland that some say is its most beautiful. There are others who say it's its most haunted. It's known as Glam's Castle, and aside from its history, its beauty, and its ghostly legends, it's also home to a legendary secret, a legendary room, and a legendary monster. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today on Monster Talk, we welcome back author and historian Mike Dash. Mike's been on to discuss Spring Hill Jack and the Beast of Loch Morar, and now he's back to talk about the strange and fascinating folklore about a hidden monster in Glam's Castle. But before we get to that monster, Karen wants to talk with us a bit about some ghostly folklore around the castle. We haven't had a good pre-interview chat in a while, so let's do that. Monster Talk. So, Karen, today we're going to be talking to Mike Dash in this interview, but yeah. but Mike's research has primarily been about the uh, the monster at Glam's Castle. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of other legends about the castle that are not part of that research that he did. Would you like to sort of uh, recap some of that? Because I think that's yeah. also interesting. Well, uh, let me just say, yeah. by the way, it's a castle, and during the interview. Um, we talk a little bit about the castle. We'll put pictures or links to that in the show notes. But while Mike talks about it as a manor house, uh, it's no manner of house I've ever seen. It's a <laughs> it's a castle. <laughs> yeah, manor, I think is another term for castle. I say castle. I think maybe in South Australia, in Australia, it could be, it could be Melbourne that they say castle instead. But, yeah, we say uh, I say castle coming from Sydney. But uh, yeah, there are lots of ghost stories which are associated with the, the castle or the castle. So the place is said to have at least 20 different ghosts. So I think we should, it is worth it to mention them um, because it is interesting 
and, and aside from the secret room legend. I was more familiar, to be honest, with the stories of the ghosts than the secret room. Yeah, I, me too. And and I think Mike's uh, research is really interesting, though, because it's got this sort of gothic Focus. horror element. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to put a link to his article in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Great. but uh, let's talk about some spooky stories around this castle. Yeah, well, I think one of the most famous or infamous ghosts is that of the Grey Lady. And she's said to be the ghost of a woman named Lady Janet Douglas, who lived around the time of the 16th century. And the reigning monarch of the time was King James V, and he'd had a long-standing feud with the Douglas family, and he was determined to appropriate the castle and the family wealth. And as you've seen from pictures, it was quite a substantial castle and, and wealth that the family had. And when Lady Janet's husband died, she became a widow without a protector anymore. And in those days, that was really leaving a woman very vulnerable. And she was accused by King James of witchcraft, and she was burnt at the stake. So apparently the people were very upset at the time because they didn't believe that she was a witch. And the only way that they could secure any kind of confession from her was to to torture her. So it was a horrible situation. And uh, it's now said that Janet has returned to Glam's as the Grey Lady and that her ghost is seen wandering the grounds and the halls of the castle where she once lived. So there's a lot of ghosts like in England or in the UK uh, along those lines, the the gray lady, the brown lady, the white lady. Why? There's like a full spectrum of spectral. I think there's a pink lady and a blue lady. (laughs) Have you seen a pink lady outside of Greece? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who the pink lady is associated with, but yeah, I think, as you say, they're all the colors of the spectrum. That's crazy. (laughs) Sorry. Why well, I don't know. Um, I think there's a. Oh no, that's actually a grey nurse. I was thinking about Borley Rectory, and we haven't. We have to do a show on Borley Rectory sometime. Yeah, and Harry Price. I think uh, in general, it, it, we. Yes. I think you and I both have a, a a huge amount of affection for Harry. <laughs> yeah, one of those early stories I heard about as a kid, and and have a lot of affection for. Yeah. So then there's another ghost who's known only as the woman without a tongue. And I remember reading about this in a book as a kid, and it's a a woman who has a very badly wounded face, and she's seen running around the grounds at midnight, as ghosts often do, and she's pointing to her disfigured face, but it's not known who she is or what happened to her, and it's believed that she's a different ghost to the grey lady, so she's not associated with her, but um, I can't find out any more information about her other than the fact that she has no tongue. Yeah, that that's uh, that's terrible because it really must make communication quite challenging. Yes, I think she still screams though. But also sending postage, unless you get the pre-adhesive stamps. Yeah. Oh, that's right. <laughs> never, I'd never have thought of that. <laughs> but uh, there's also the Earl Beardy, and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be talking about him. He's a, a poker playing character who's linked to the secret room, and he's believed to be a ghost in the castle too. But the weird thing is he's mostly seen by children at night and he leans over their beds and often he's dressed as an armoured knight. Um, So there are also, again, we'll hear more about the story from Mike, but it's believed that he wanders the halls or he still plays cards um, and and drinks with the devil. So, again, Mike is going to tell us more about that. Yeah. Does he wear armour while he plays cards? I don't know. I I would assume so. Mm, That's interesting. So those are really the the most famous stories. So apparently there are, as I said, up to 20 different ghosts, but there are other claims of different kinds of phenomena like 
disembodied screaming which might come from the woman without a tongue and doors that slam unexpectedly and strange hammering noises that are heard throughout the night too. So it's apparently the most haunted castle or the most haunted place in Scotland. Wow. And, and, they say about every place. Anyway. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a uh, that's one of those uh, marketing terms that seems to be pretty uh, unimpeachable, right? We are the most haunted, right? Oh, Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Most haunted place in America is every place. And same same for Australia. Same for England. I I think uh, the the whole uh, there's that sort of business in uh, uh, bed and breakfast that are haunted. Right. And I always Mm -hmm. think that they've already made a movie with this title. But I love the idea of uh, uh, dread and breakfast. Uh, which oh. which was just like a, a guide to places that are haunted to go stay at because I think you know there's a there's I've noticed a lot more places becoming haunted over the last 15 20 years and especially those with big mortgages yeah <laughs> oh my god that would explain so much around my house okay <laughs> I, I, I maybe there's a business model there somewhere but uh yeah yes, yeah <laughs> I would, I'd love to find another revenue stream, even if it's from the beyond. Uh, so, yeah. That's... Well, yeah, this is all captured now, so you, you can't go and do that. We... Well, you know, <laughs> we have one of those. My daughters think my house is haunted. I think we've paid, or at least Maddie does. Uh, and and I, I've, I've encouraged her to go have a look, you know, and I said, look, I'm, I'm very skeptical. But if, if that's what you think, you're welcome to look around and investigate, you know, whatever. So there's no real basis for... Like there's not, you know, a lot of the ghost hunts start with like, I see this mysterious stuff happening, this phenomena that I can't explain. So now I'm mm-hmm. going to go research the property and find out like who's died here. Well, right. ours was a piece of farmland that turned into forest that then turned into a neighborhood. So there's no history uh-huh. here. Like this house was built on old pine wood, right? You know, that used to be cotton farm. So it, it's just, yeah. You know, very- well, this is a great opportunity for you to teach us some skeptical investigative methods and- I, I certainly understand what she's talking about though i've heard many times i've been down in the basement alone in the house know i'm alone and hear what sounds like somebody walking upstairs to the point that mm-hmm. i yell upstairs to say did somebody come home right uh, but i've come to suspect that what's really happening is that the wind is blowing against the side of the house like a sail uh, okay. And then that's as it, it sort of presses in on the house, it makes it creak. But I, okay. I, I could be the house settling or something. Well, too. I don't think we're settling. We're on a big concrete slab. But but okay. But I do think it would be interesting to set up an experiment where I set up uh what oh, what is it anemometer where you like look at wind speed, uh, and then <laughs> if I could keep a constant log of the wind speed around the house in the direction. And then note when I sort of experience that sound, I could probably figure mm-hmm. out if there is an actual correlation between wind and the sound of somebody walking around the house when there's nobody here. I, I haven't done that experiment. So right now what I've done is made a perfectly plausible rationalization. Uh, but I would mm-hmm. be interested in that, although it seems like a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, it's so much easier to just run around with an EMF. Maybe. I didn't even think about that. What I actually do is even lazier than that. I say, is anybody here? Nobody says anything. I go back to work. <laughs> well, you could maybe record some EVPs. Is anyone in here? Yeah. Who's here with me? But yeah, that, that sounds like a lot more effort than the, the ghost hunters go to. As a I, I, I'm Very too lazy to be a, a, a really serious investigator, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get on to our interview. Monster dog. All right. Uh, 
Hey, uh, we're welcoming back Mike Dash, uh, who is uh, an extraordinary researcher into matters paranormal and stuff that sort of uh, parallels uh, what Monster Talk looks into. We've had him on before. Especially memorable was his discussion of Spring Hill Jack. So if you haven't heard that a discussion, you need to hop back on and listen to that. We'll put that in the show notes. I don't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but uh, a fun discussion. Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, because I'm terrible, that's why. And, uh, and we're here to talk about a monster. And um, I just, before we started recording, I heard Karen pronounce it differently than me. Uh, so how is, yeah, how is this pronounced? Well, we should really pronounce it with a um, clipped Scottish accent, which I won't try and do because I'm not very good at accents, but it's supposed to be pronounced glams. Glams. Okay, because I've heard glams. I've heard glamis. Yeah. So, the uh, correct lowland Scots is glams, I'm told. Glams. Okay. Like the 70s rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So, so Mike's been looking into one particular aspect, but we'll, I think we'll at least touch on some of the other aspects. It's a castle. Uh, castles are like, uh, they're like a piece of chewing gum under a couch. They, they collect legends, right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Glam's, Glam's like Castle, um, and I'm mixing my accents here because I have this sort of Southern English accent where I have these long A's. So Glam's Castle is actually the archetypal uh, haunted castle in many ways. I mean, it has a whole host of legends attached to it. It has four or five different ghosts. Um, it has a hidden room mystery. It has the monster mystery, which is where we're probably going to be focusing the discussion. Um, it dates back a very long way. The, the actual building, which is there now, is mostly um, 15th and 16th century in construction. Um, but it, it appears, for example, in Macbeth. Um, so uh, where, of course, Macbeth is Thane of Cordor, Thane of Glamis. Um, and uh, it's also the location where a Scottish king, um, Malcolm II, uh, was murdered. So, I mean, there, there are lots of, you know, fairly outlandish, violent, spooky things that uh, occurred there because the lowland part of Scotland has a violent, spooky, lengthy history, essentially. Was it, so, I, I know that uh, Karen and I get hooked on various legends, and we become curious about their origins and then get obsessed with solving the mysteries. What, how did you get involved in this one? Like what, what led it to become one of those things that you felt like you needed to dig into? It's very, I mean, I think we've discussed this before, but a lot of um, my own fascination with this comes from the reading I did as a kid. Um, there was a book um, I had um, by a woman called Jacinth Simpson called Who Knows, which had a whole series, I think it was like 12 little chapters. It was a book aimed at sort of nine, ten-year-old kids. Um, and one of them was about the monster of, of Glams, and it had a, a a picture of this sort of misshapen monstrosity confronting an, a hapless visitor to the castle. And so it kind of stuck in my mind. And, and rather like a lot of the things I get fascinated with, I mean, my other main characteristic is that I will... Where there were kind of, you know, a fork in the road, I will always take the road less travelled and then the road less travelled than that. And and weirdly, for some reason, although The Monster of Glams is one of these stories that a very large number of people have heard, it's never, virtually never, been properly looked into or written about at all, actually. And so it naturally had an appeal to me there just because I, I knew the story and I was surprised to find that it hadn't actually been, you know, more covered by, you know, major writers of ghost law, folklore, and so on and so forth. There were little scraps, but it, when I first looked into it, which is, I guess, about eight or nine years ago now, um, it took me several weeks, actually, to assemble 
all the bits of the story and you know some accounts have some some accounts have other but there was no kind of one central repository and i wrote it up um and then i published it with the smithsonian which i think has helped to, to get the story much better known actually than it was when i first came across it um and nowadays when you look online you often see versions that are heavily based on what i put together and wrote so it's one of those things that maybe now looks like it's pretty well known but actually it wasn't even eight or ten years ago so, Mike, we've got lots of legends and stories here. Could we start with a little overview of the history of glams? Yes. So it's it's in the lowlands of Scotland, um, so between sort of Edinburgh and the border with England. Um, it is the home of the Bowes Lion family, um, which is a pretty distinguished family, and most notably the most eminent member of it was Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who was the mother of the current Queen of Britain, um, and who grew up in the castle. So, you know, that, that gives it a certain cachet, I think. But the history of the, the Covendales goes back to the uh, 1600s, um, and that family has, has owned and lived in the castle for pretty much, pretty much continuously uh, for that period. Um, so it goes back to the period when, you know, Scotland was an independent country, when quite a lot of warfare took place along the border with England. And so it's a, it's a sort of, it's not a, a castle in the sense of having a central keep and a sort of large you know, uh, wall around it with sort of crenellations and so on. Um, it's really a sort of gigantic fortified manor house, but it's got turrets and so on. And it's been built around so that it started off as sort of like a, a massive central keep type building, which is quite characteristic of that part of Scotland. So it would have had a fortified door, but it was always a home rather than a fortress, if you see what I mean. Um, and then certainly from the sort of 1600s onwards, it was added to and added to. And so it now has various wings. Um, and uh, I suppose the first time it was associated in the popular consciousness with odd goings on actually goes back to the time of Walter Scott, the well-known novelist of the early 19th century, who in the late 1700s, when he was a very young man, actually, um, arranged to stay at Glam's for the night. And this was the time when it was actually a rather dilapidated, run-down sort of castle. The family weren't living there themselves at the time because it was so chilly and uncomfortable. Um, and he was invited in by the factor, who's the guy who runs the estate for the family, uh, and shown to this sort of distant room. And uh, he wrote an account of this experience in the 1830s, one of the interesting things about it, why it matters, I suppose, is that he talks about some parts of the mystery, but not all of them. So it would appear that when he was there in the 1790s, not the whole mystery hadn't actually kind of come into existence. But, you know, he, he wrote this rather memorable description of the uncomfortable feeling of having been shown to his bedroom for the night and hearing the, the, the factor sort of retreat down this sort of endless corridor, closing and clanging and locking door after door after door and saying, you know, I felt as I heard, heard the man retreat that I had been left somewhat too far from the living and somewhat too close to the dead. <laughs> That's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> so what um so i know a good bit of this is covered in your article and we'll put a link to that in the show notes but ultimately the the secret of the castle has a specific meaning can you talk about that a little bit what is the secret that we're talking about sure here? so i mean it, it comes in two parts and as i say i mean scott writes about one part and not the other part so i, I guess i should mention them distinctly that the first part of the secret is that the castle has a secret room um, now, as I mentioned, it's a very old, heavily defended castle, and that means that the exterior walls of the central part of it are anything up to 16 feet thick. Um, and it's often been commented that, you know, there is plenty of room in that sort of a castle to hide something. Um, 
We also know from some of the early castle accounts going back to the 1600s um, that a, a sort of a secret room which was intended as a hiding place in, in the case of a, a raid on the castle or something was actually built in, in there um, by one of the very early earls in uh, around about 1620, 1630. Um, so undoubtedly, you know, there are some hidden rooms, hidden glams, and uh, there's also famously a trap door under one of the guest rooms, which is called the Blue Room, and a man called um, Ernest Hamilton, who was again a sort of minor British aristocrat who wrote his memoirs in the 1920s, and in fact is involved in the Spring Hill Jack mystery. Um, but in these memoirs, he describes when he was visiting the castle as a boy, when he was you know, 12, 13 years old, um, you know, peeling back the carpet in the blue room, finding a trapdoor, and lowering himself on a rope into this sort of black void with a, a candle, and following a twisting staircase down and a, a corridor that sort of ended in a blank wall. So, um, you know, there are all sorts of strange hidden places, for sure, I think, in the castle. Um, now, what was in the room is a slightly different question. And again, there are there are various stories about this. There's one of the oldest ones, which I think goes back to before the story we're about to discuss in much more detail, involves another early Earl called Earl Beardy. That was his nickname, who was a notoriously dissolute character, loved gambling and uh, used to do it on the Sabbath, which obviously, particularly in Scotland, which is a pretty Presbyterian area, is an absolute definite no-no. And the legend goes that, you know, he... he um, was gambling with his friends on a Saturday night. When it came to midnight, they all wanted to retire because, of course, the Sabbath was about to start. He insisted on continuing to gamble, and they wouldn't because that would obviously be irreligious. And there's a sort of crack of lightning and a smell of brimstone, and a, a tall, dark, handsome stranger comes into the room and offers to gamble with El Birdie. And obviously, this is, in fact, uh, the devil um, tempting him. And they go off into this hidden room and gamble away. Um, and Earl Beard, he never emerges. He's still there, still gambling, um, and that's his his sort of personal hell. So that's that's the the earliest I think version of what's in the hidden room. But there's also another story which is unprovable, but I mean it certainly has a a fair degree of antiquity, which again goes back to the the period I was talking about earlier, where you know there's lots of uh, local warfare going on, you know, often between different clans and families. So uh, an enemy of the uh, of the, the the Earls of Strathmore, who are the Ogilvies. Um, are supposed to have um, been engaged in sort of low-level warfare and raiding and stealing each other's cattle. Uh, this is in the 1700s, supposedly, and sent a, a sort of peace delegation over to to seek uh, an end to this period. And they were shown into a room, which turned out to be the hidden room, um, and asked to wait there. And then, of course, they were barricaded in, locked in, and left to starve to death. And supposedly, when the room was eventually opened, uh, there are various skeletons, evidence of cannibalism having taken place and so on and so forth. So there are sort of a couple of other early variant accounts uh, involving horrors uh, to do with this hidden room. Um, and, and it's worth bearing that in mind before we get into the sort of meat of what we're about to talk about. And so I'd heard that uh, some skulls had been found in there. That's not true then? Well, I mean, that would be part of the Ogilvy legend. And I think it is a legend. Right. I mean, certainly we don't have the skulls uh, and it's the sort of thing where you know i mean yeah the, the elements of the legend are so explicitly well crafted and legendary sounding that you know as a historian one's alarm bells start ringing i mean it's, it's not impossible that uh, <laughs> these types of things did go on but uh, there is absolutely no evidence that i'm aware of that this specific incident happened or that um, anybody was actually barricaded until they starved to death which is a bit a bit gothic isn't it really yeah you know, really Get rid of your, your enemies. There are possibly other ways of doing it than that. I had never actually thought about the, the sort of similarities between those folklore stories about gambling with the devil and uh, vampire lore. 
but they both end up with a problem of a stake in the heart. Pretty much, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, Earl Beardy, of course, is still, I mean, again, he's one of those people who occasionally are supposed to, you know, visitors are supposed to encounter, uh, you know, this sort of noise of gambling, you know, ringing down the, the castle corridors. So it's it's a live myth, uh, not not the most popular one there, but there are, there are many, uh, but it certainly has a lot of antiquity. So there's part of it there. You've got this secret room in the house, um, and so aside from where we're going with this, uh, about what might be in that secret room, can you tell us about what the occupants have been, have done over the history of t- the house? Uh, I say house, I'll put a link to the, I'll put a picture in the show notes. This is, I, I think house. Castle's a perfectly good name. Not for a what prison. To say. <laughs> it's, it's a really nice place. It's a lot. It's beautiful. It, oh, it's, it's, it's a lot exquisite. nicer than my place. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, can you talk about some of the methods that people have used while this sort of uh, mystery was popular to look for the secret room? Well, absolutely. And the most famous one, um, which might actually have happened, uh, dates back to um, 1850. So this was the time of the 12th Earl of Strathmore, who was a, a famously sort of, you know, a sportsman, loved horse racing, a very extrovert, outgoing character. Um, and he went off on business for a few days, leaving his wife with a sort of house party of guests. And you know, one of the interesting things about this, and the story dates not massively long after, it's about 20 years, is that it suggests something about you know how widely known at least the secret room portion of the story must have been around about the middle of the 19th century. But the story goes that um, with the Earl sort of conveniently off on business for several days, uh, somebody in this house party suggested a hunt for the secret room, and they came up with the idea of um, touring the, the house and handing, hanging sheets out of every window that they could find, uh, with the idea being, obviously, that the secret room would have some sort of window which wouldn't be normally accessible because the whole secret room wasn't accessible. Um, and supposedly, when they all went outside to have a look at their handiwork, somewhere between one and four windows were left um, without any sheets hanging off of them. But before they could work out roughly where the, uh, the these windows were in the sort of internal geography of the house, the Earl makes his reappearance. And I suppose it's the, you know, the, the again, the sort of neatness of the, the reappearance just at the nick of time, which perhaps suggests the fictitiousness of at least some elements of the story to me. But uh, anyway, the, the, the Earl um, was in a, a huge rage. Um, he had a, a violent row with his wife, who he accused of failing to take seriously a secret that he knew mattered to the family and was, was deeply meaningful to them and something they didn't want to be treated as a sort of lighthearted banter. Um, and undoubtedly also, again, I mean, it is true that um, the couple did divorce and that the uh, former uh, Countess of Strathmore ended up um, dying alone in Italy uh, a few years after that. So so that story, as I say, is about 20 years after the fact and, and certainly suggests that by the middle of the 19th century, the idea that there was a secret room and that I think you know what's been added to this perhaps um, since the, the beginning of it is the idea that the Earl knows where it is and can get into it when he wants to and chooses for whatever reason not to get into it. That That's perhaps an addition that we need to bear in mind at this point in the in the story. Okay, I have to say that uh, every time we talk about the secret, I keep thinking about the law of attraction. That's a <laughs> different kind of secret. This is so like the, 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 this is the law of repulsion, <laughs> apparently. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what about the, the monster in the room? When did this become... Uh, explicitly part of the story. 
Okay, so yeah, I mean, we're now on to the sort of central portion. The, the yeah, the modern version of the story, which is the one you're going to read ninety five percent of the time, is that in fact the room was home to a monster, uh, and the main idea that is always said about this, and you know, what makes it a a secret that the, the the family would have wanted to keep, is that the monster is in fact the the rightful heir to uh, to the estate, to the castle, to Glams. Uh, so he's the oldest son of one of the earls, uh, or one of the earl's oldest sons, um, but he's born horribly deformed. Um, now, the earliest version we have of what exactly the form of that deformity might be dates back to 1885, where a woman called Miss Gilchrist wrote about uh, a monster in the shape of a sort of half frog, um, and sometimes you hear him referred to as a sort of deformed toad. Um, now. That's a bit vague and it does, again, sound a little implausible and we could talk about the London Frog probably at this point or something like that. But um, what, what actually seems to be the case is it's actually a rather bad metaphor. I mean, again, we have to scroll forward somewhat, but um, in the 1960s, so when the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was still alive and her daughter was already Queen of England. So, I mean, the whole story was therefore sort of publishable. A man called James Wentworth Day, who was a sort of you know, arch-Tory, arch-establishment figure, but also quite a well-known writer, went up to Glams and wrote a book called The Queen Mother's Family Story. Um, and he devoted a chapter to the story of the monster of Glams. And he referred at that point um, in a bit more detail and having talked to several members of the family, uh, I guess we'll come back to exactly how well they may or may not have known the, the story because it, that's something we should probably deal with at the end of this discussion. But he asked them what, about, about what the monster was and was told it was sort of, you know, a hideously misshapen creature with an, a, the neck, no neck, so the head sort of mounted straight on the body, a sort of immensely powerful, hairy torso, but sort of attenuated limbs. So um, a child who'd been born... Um, with quite significant deformities and obviously therefore a child who couldn't really be allowed to become um, heir to Glams and was then locked away in the secret room and cared for. I mean, I think this is the, the, the interesting thing about it. Um, so the idea is that, you know, other parts of the, the family network and specifically the factors, I mentioned one of the factors in the story of Walter Scott, but these are the estate managers who look after the estate and, and the castle on behalf of the family. And they are, you know, they are much more than just ordinary servants. They are sort of quite significant Scottish gentlemen in their own right. And Glam's very famously only only had four of these people between the dates 1765 and 1949. So, I mean, these are people who would belong to sort of family dynasties and they would you know, start in their mid-20s when their father died and continue till they died sort of age 70 or 80. So they are really sort of family retainers in the kind of, you know, again, the, the sort of classic horror trope and, and very trusted and discreet and dour sort of people um, and it was the fact as normally you would hear who were the people who were in charge of looking after the air so so the concept is that this air is born at some point and again i mean most of the times you only read the story you will read that the the ideal candidate is a baby who we know was born to the the heir, so the, not the earl, but the, his eldest son, had a child with his wife in 1821. And the, the uh, Scots uh, peerage books refer to this child and say that he was born and died on the same day in October 1821. So the theory, which actually wasn't put together till the 1960s by a journalist called Paul Bloomfield, 
writing for a magazine called Queen, uh, which is the same as your magazine, Harper's Bazaar, by the way, uh, essentially. Um, so the, uh, he, he came up with the idea that this child had been born in 1821. That's not the only version of the story. There is another version which says that the monster was born in about 1799, so about 20 years earlier, and that was published in Notes and Queries in 1884, so it significantly antedates Paul Bloomfield's version. And that would have meant that he was the child of a, a different Earl, uh, the 11th Earl. So there are a couple of alternative dates and there are several possible dates for when this monster died. But the key point about it is it's tremendously long lived. Um, so you can you can take your pick. The New York Times, of all newspapers, published a story in 1884 saying that they had heard from some source that the monster had died uh, in that year. Um, there's also 1904 is often given as a date, and Mountbatten, Earl Mountbatten, who was um, another part of the royal family uh, and a favourite uh, of Prince Philip, uh, the Queen's husband, um, he said that he had heard that the monster didn't die until the 1920s. So, again, I mean, you could take your pick between you know, the, the date of birth and the date of death, but fundamentally it covers most of if not all of the 19th century. And, and that's really the century in which the story sort of gets out, is widely retold and elaborated. And there's a general feeling that by the time you get to the turn of the century, early 1900s, it, the mystery goes away. Something's happened and that something is most obviously that the monster is dead and hence there's no longer any need to, to keep visitors away. There's no longer any risk of people stumbling across the monster being exercised, taken out on the battlements and an area on the battlements is actually called the, the Mad Earl's Walk. It was supposed to be seen in the moonlight on certain nights sort of wandering around up there. Um, or, 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 of course, you know, being out of the room and bumping into people inside the castle. And again, there are some stories I could tell you about that as well, if you're interested in. So there are, you know, there are various things where the monster is seen and that's supposedly how the story fundamentally gets out into the public consciousness. But by 1900 or so, the story is essentially already over. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Uh, have either of you ever seen the uh, League of Gentlemen, the uh, British sketch comedy show? 
Not with relating relating to this one. I'm obviously aware of it, but I can't think exactly of the oh. whoever you're, you're talking about. You're going to have to go into some detail for me. Sure, sure. What about you, Blake? Have I've you collected. I've collected them, and I'm a, a, a big fan of Mark Gaddis. But uh, no. Well, this is this couple, and they own a local store, and they have some kind of um, disfigured child. I think living upstairs, and I'm wondering if that's kind of a nod to this story. Um, but I'm also just wondering if this is a, an urban legend of sorts because the idea of having a uh, disfigured child which is just kept away from public view, uh, I wonder if it originates from the, the glands. Um, but uh, I just wonder if it originates with this story or if this is just a, an urban legend that's been around for a while. I actually suspect that it goes back beyond that. I, I would need to do a bit more research. But, there, you know, there is this whole trope in gothic literature of you know um, mysterious spooky castles with mysterious spooky secrets and i think that that goes back at least as far as the castle of otranto which is a fairly famous novel published in the 1760s 70s i think roughly um so it probably does um anti-date glamps um the other interesting thing to say about this of course and you know this wouldn't have been known to the people who were talking about the story in the 19th century is that the bose line family do have a bit of form when it comes to locking relatives away. Um, and that's often something which is brought up by more modern commentators. So um, two cousins of the current queen um, who were born into the Bose Lion family in the 1920s and were, both had um, uh, mental uh, problems. So, so they, were, they, they, they had um, various mental issues that essentially meant that they, they could never really be you know, look after themselves. Um, they were both rather infamously sort of locked away in... You know, various Victorian era asylums uh, and never visited by the family at all and lived their entire lives, um, you know, essentially incarcerated, um, which is something which is sometimes flung at the royal family by uh, Republicans, in fact, uh, that they were so badly treated. So um, it's not beyond all bounds of possibility that a family like the Bose Lions might treat members who were considered to be you know, less than fully presentable um, in this sort of a way. Just for my edification, uh, is a British Republican different from a Tory or is that the same thing? I don't know what that actually means. That's the it's the That's opposite. Okay. Yeah. I, I suspected from what you said, it must be different. What The Tories are usually pretty monarchist, but then most Brits are pretty monarchist. The, the Republican movement Certainly, since you know the recovery of the royal families, you know after Princess Diana's death, has been you know pretty small and and, and insignificant actually. I mean, there are, you know there are a significant proportion of well-educated Brits who are not fantastic fans of the royal family, but would normally say, well, you know they're not doing a bad job and they seem decent enough people, so we'll let them be essentially, as opposed to being sort of actively wanting to guillotine them, which is more of a kind of foreign thing as far as the Brits are concerned. This reminds me a lot of the sort of Victorian trope of the mad woman in the attic, uh, you. You know, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. so hiding away your your family members with mental illness. You know, there they are. They're they're there, but they're they've been ghosted basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, absolutely, and again, well, I mean, we're talking about the right period, aren't we? I mean, uh-huh. that is obviously you know Jane Eyre, uh, which is a novel of what the late eighteen fifties, early eighteen sixties. Sorry, I'm not a, a lit major, but it's r- roughly the same sort of time and so you know i mean whether charlotte bronte is drawing on the same sort of wellspring or you know influencing people later i mean perhaps both i don't know but i think that absolutely you know what we should be saying here is absolutely glams is not the only place where this is supposed to happen um some of the parts of the legend are actually you know can be found earlier in other places and you know most significantly i think when i was digging around on this is a place in cheshire which is in england about i don't know 250 miles south of glams roughly uh, there's a, a a manor there called Vale Royal, 
um, which has very precisely this same legend that there is a hidden room inside it. And you know, the other thing, which we haven't touched on now, but perhaps it's a good moment to do so, is this concept that you know the secret is kept by three people. And that is something which, which is known to have been said of Vale Royal before it was said of Glance. But um, you know, certainly in the 19th century, it was widely believed that the secret was in the hands of three people who traditionally are supposed to be the Earl, the Earl's heir, after he comes of age at the age of 21, and the factor. So the factor, again, comes into it as somebody who has to know practical reasons. So, you know, the, the story goes that then, that you know, this is a story, this is a story which is passed down from father to son. And as I say, I mean, you get it, you get told it, you get taken away and is imparted to you when you come of age at the age of 21. And one of the, the again, I mean, it's a, a spooky trope, which I suspect, again, you could find in many places, but you see in all the stories about glands pretty much, is that, you know, there's this, change then that is observable that comes over the air when he is initiated into the secret so there's this um you know there's this passage where uh it's commented and, and this comes from, again from one of the sort of early versions of the story that I, I know was around in the 19th century um where it said you know that these heirs have always joked about it with their friends you know so everyone knows the story and you know they, they so you know the air and he's coming up to his 21st birthday and you say you know you've got to tell us i mean this is an amazing story once you're initiated promise us you'll tell us the secret of the, the hidden room and whatever is in it and you know they they seal it with a, a toast in champagne or burgundy or whatever it is um and then of course the air comes to his 21st birthday goes off for his talk comes back literally kind of ashen faced and with a completely changed character um and is now having once been a sort of you know a young buck with sort of you know uh happy gay um sporting and so on suddenly becomes virtually an old man overnight uh will never discuss the secret again with anybody absolutely refuses to keep the promise that he's made to his mates. And this again goes back also to the, the whole story of the, the Countesses of Glance. And we talked earlier about the the woman who, who went searching for the hidden room with the sheets. And, you know, again, the, the standard version of this is that they are continuously frustrated by their husband's absolute refusal to discuss this mystery that they've been initiated into. And most famously, the wife of the 13th Earl of Strathmore, who came of a, uh, who, who was told the secret must have been around about 1850 and became Earl in the 1860s. Um, so there's, again, I mean, this, this is rather wonderful. And it's so perfect that, again, it, it sort of almost belongs in fiction, even if it is true, that, you know, she waits till, she waits till the Earl is gone and she, she uh, sort of corners the fact that an enormously respectable and doer Scot called Andrew Ralston and begs him to say, you know, I know that you also know the secret, but you must tell me what it is. And he responds... Lady Strathmore, it is fortunate for you that you do not know and cannot know the secret. For if you did know it, you would never be a happy woman. This idea of the secret rooms reminding me a little bit of the Amityville Red Room, too. I know it's a completely different story, but uh, just the idea of this secret hidden room. Oh, I, I hope that if it turns out there is a secret room in Glam's that it's better than the Red Room in Amityville, because that's kind of pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Small time version. Though. Yeah, yeah. The uh, for for <laughs> listeners who aren't familiar with it, I guess there was this legendary red, almost satanically evil room in the house uh, in the Amityville horror story. And then in reality, my understanding is that it was an area under the downstairs, and I guess into the basement that had been painted red and was just a little storage area. So, uh, which version you prefer is? Probably says more about it. pig. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, what was it? Um, oh. Jody. Jody, thank you. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I, 
And it's such a cheap effect in the movie, yet it was so scary when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good old <laughs> anyway, Amityville. Sorry. I, I, what, I, you had a question. <laughs> well, I, I had a comment as well. It's this, the, this actually came up a few days ago, uh, uh, this sort of thing. That what we're talking about, on the one sense, if we say, oh, well, this is just a legend, it's easy enough to say, well, it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's just a story about a spooky, you know, castle with a secret, right? But it also sort of hints at the fact that as a culture, people have this uh, tendency to hide away things that don't fit in with societal norms. And we were at the uh, mall the other day, Brennan. We parked our car and a car parked directly in front of us. And the passengers were a, a woman and what appeared to be her daughter. And the daughter had a profound facial deformity. And immediately felt a little bit gut punched. There's something very visceral about seeing someone with a facial deformity. And I don't know, it's like there's, there's this, this process that I go through almost every time. I see someone with a profound deformity and I go, oh, and I feel like a gut punch. And then I'm like, well, they can't help that. That's not their fault. It, you know, and they're just a person, you know, get to know them, find out about their situation if you want to. But you don't, you know, like there's a visceral part that I can't turn off that makes me sort of horrified at facial deformity. My mom was burned in college. She got, uh, her, it's a long family story, but basically she was wearing a, a flammable house coat, uh, a, a robe, and backed into like a space heater. It caught on fire. 70% of her body was third degree burned with scars. So she's, uh, my entire life, I've only known her, as, known her as a scarred person, right? And so when I meet scarred up people, I, I almost always feel the same way about, well, you know, it's not their fault, they're scarred, and I'm not horrified. Unless it's facial, and it's like, then I still have that same moment of dealing with the fact that their face is disfigured, and I don't know, there doesn't seem to be anything I can do to that, uh, you know, except just get to know them and it goes away. Exposure over time, it always goes away. But but this idea of monsterifying people is literally where our word monster comes from. It comes from this idea of something that's unnatural or different from what we expect. And, uh, and I, I find this kind of interesting because i think it's easy to judge these these people and say oh well they're hiding their family secret but i i don't know based on things like john merrick and our history of having freak yeah, shows i was thinking of freak yeah. shows and side yeah, shows yeah john merrick the that, elephant man just to specify that for people who don't know mm -hmm. the name but the, the yeah the, the the life of a person with profound deformities is still kind of i mean it's still a problem like at least we have we have plastic surgery to try to fix some of the the situation now but back in th those times that wasn't even an option but i think we can take it one step further i'm sorry Karen, i don't mean to talk over you um but um yeah i mean we are talking here about a noble family and you know nobility has a physical construct especially in the earlier period um you know and, and you are supposed to be perfect you are supposed to be the perfect gentleman both in terms of your your physical robustness and you know it comes with all of that as well as your manners and your breeding so it is part of the sort of tripartite nature of being a noble that you are this sort of physically perfect specimen and this is one of the things that you know says i have the right and i have the you know and the duty and everything else to be rule over other people to you know to have all this stuff and to be in a different class and look down on the hoi polloi and all of that is tied into physical perfection or at least you know not physical clearly not physical imperfection and that is why the, the idea of sort of locking something like the monster of lambs away is is so easy to believe in the in the most literal sense of it sorry Karen, oh, I'm not, go on. no worries oh, i was just thinking uh that uh 
in, in about the 20th century, uh, sideshows and freak shows, people lost interest in them and, and started looking at them in a, a different light once we had the med- medicalization, I guess, of or medical understanding of deformity and disfigurement. But uh, before that time, people believed that there was some maybe demonic or satanic influence or reason for why these people were disfigured. Absolutely. In the elephant man story, don't you, where it's commonly believed that you know, his mother is scared by an elephant, quite literally, while she's pregnant, yes. why he looks like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a gigantic backfield of, of you know sort of completely dis, um, you know disproved belief that we have kind of forgotten about but we need to tap into to, to understand the power that these stories had at the time that they were being told oh yeah, yeah. and the, the idea that, that these these deformities were also could be a punishment for some wrong done as well absolutely yeah, and if you had uh, the idea that uh nobility and gentry and royalty in, in the United Kingdom were somehow selected by God, then you wouldn't want to have the idea that there was this satanic influence somewhere in there. I, I promised to tell you some more of the stories, and I guess we should kind of get those out there. I made a couple of notes there, so I'll just run through them, because I, I've arranged them chronologically in the sense that I think, again, this tells us a bit about how the story evolved. So certainly by 1829, visitors of the castle were beginning to look for this hidden room, but without necessarily thinking there was a monster in it. There was a visitor there called Lion Playfair. And again, that may be a name that you guys recognize because his great, great nephew or something was Guy Lion Playfair, the well-known parapsychologist. But this guy was called Lion Playfair. He, he wrote that when he was a child, he went and searched for the hidden room in 1829. Um, then again, you, know, you get to the 1860s, roughly the story is obviously becoming much wider known and the, the story that's most often told about this particular period is to do with a, a local workman who was um, doing some repairs in the castle uh, late in the evening and saw something in the passageway sort of shuffling around in the corner of his eye and when he reported this to the clerk of the works the clerk of the works told the factor and the next morning this guy is, is called in to see the earl who rather pressingly urges him to emigrate to Australia and offers to pay the passage for him and his entire family to do so. And he's sort of shuffled off the scene before he can talk about it. Now, this is important for one other reason than the story, which is a bit vague, actually. And that is that in order to get rid of this workman, um, the family lawyer also had to be initiated into the secret so that he knew what was going on and why it was so imperative for the the man to be got rid of. Uh, And that has a very major impact a couple of years later when um, the when the 13th Earl comes of age, because he is supposed to have said at that point, is it not the case that, in fact, three people already know the secret, the Earl, the lawyer, and the factor? And when that was admitted to be the truth, he said, in that case, I prefer not to be initiated until it becomes absolutely necessary. And this is the first time when you know, some sort of agency is sort of given to the heir. And, and so this comes up a couple of times later with, with similar heirs sort of, you know, art begging in some cases not to be initiated. And this is usually given as the reason why that the secret is fi- finally ultimately lost. Um, so then after that, you also have an undated story, which again has these sort of rather wonderfully fictional elements of a, a local doctor called in to tend one of the people in the house who's put up there overnight uh, and notices, um, having come back from, he, he goes down for his dinner and comes back to find that there's a different carpet on the floor to the one that there had been in the room when he went down three hours earlier. And curious, he kind of peels it back, finds a trapdoor underneath the carpet, enters it, finds a very similar kind of passageway to the one that Ernest Hamilton appears to describe, again terminating in a blank wall, but when he puts his finger onto the wall, 
it's wet cement. Someone's been down there only an hour or two earlier and has bricked it up and covered it with cement uh, while he's there. For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, for the love of God, Fortunato. He, he runs back to his room, he puts down the trap door, he puts the carpet back, everything seems to be normal, he can't be found out. But the next morning, mysteriously, he's he goes under breakfast and there is nobody there. The, the Earl has sort of absented himself and there's just an envelope with his fee uh, and a carriage waiting at the door to take him away from the house immediately. Uh, so, and then finally, I, well, I'll tell you two more, um, I think, um, because, again, I mean, they, they both add to the spookiness. So the, the 13th Earl, when he was initiated, he's the first one who becomes sort of serious overnight. And there are quite a few stories of people staying in the in the castle in the, the latter half of the 19th century, which is the period when he was ill, and commenting on, you know, the whole family, they're gay, they're joyous, they, they're lovely company, they have all these sort of amateur theatricals they run. The only person who's ever unhappy is the Earl, uh, who wears this sort of constantly mournful expression. Um, and um, he is supposed to have, have had a chat with the Bishop of Brecon, which is the nearby town, who was an old friend of the family who, who noticed this in him and said, you know, please, you know, use my services as an, as an ecclesiastic. There must be something I can do to help you. Uh, and responds rather magnificently. And again, in a sort of very literary way, you know, in my most unfortunate position, there is nobody who can help me. So uh, he was uh, not not uh, willing to disclose even to a bishop what was going on. That's a story told by the well-known society gossip, Augustus Hare. Uh, and then finally, I should go back to Andrew Ralston, who, as I mentioned, was this sort of enormously respected local figure, the, the factor of the castle for over 50 years, um, and you know, local county councillor and you know, generally a pillar of society. He is said to have refused ever to sleep in the, in the house overnight, uh, under any circumstances, and famously on one occasion where there was a gigantic uh, blizzard and a heavy snowfall, uh, having sort of finished his business with the Earl at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, and the Earl begged him to, to take a spare room and just stay till morning. He refused point blank to do so and had every servant in the castle roused to dig a, a pathway back to his house a mile away so that he wouldn't have to stay in the castle overnight. So, again, you have stories sort of reinforcing the, the sort of air of menace without really saying exactly what it is to be feared which i think is again you know this, you could imagine a horror film that makes good use of those types of tropes to build an air of dread and sort of show sort of fl shadows flitting around in the background but you know not showing the sort of full frontal on the the actual monster till the very end of the film that's uh, that's happening in a sort of fictional semi-fictional literary tropey sort of way in the 19th century before film is even invented um but it's the same type of you know not giving the reveal to build up the tension that you see in all of these stories i think in your Smithsonian research, you mentioned Charles Dickens wrote about this legend in his weekly newsletter, which astounded me on two levels, because first, I didn't know much about Dickens's ghost work outside of a couple of things, uh, the obviously A Christmas Carol and uh, the uh, the one about the train tunnel, which I love. Uh, yeah. yeah, but uh, I, so can you tell me what that was all about? And first, and he had a weekly newsletter? He had a well. He he launched a magazine called All the Year Round, uh, which did appear, I think, weekly, um, and was very popular. Partly because he was the guy running it. Um, I think actually, who it would have been his son, probably by the time this story came out in it, um, who published it. But um, it absolutely All the Year Round 
1884 did run a version of this story, uh, which gave quite a few of the tales that I've um, I've just recounted actually. And because of its sort of high circulation, it um, it helped to kind of cement a lot of this in public consciousness in late Victorian England. Absolutely. So uh, so yeah, I mean the Dickens family uh, certainly did have a a part to play in this. The other person who we haven't mentioned yet who massively influenced it was a famous singer of the 1870s called Virginia Gabriel, uh, who's grandniece, I think, um, a woman called A.M.W. Sterling in the 1920s, um, told about her that she had gone and spent a long time, I mean, months, it was implied, as a house guest uh, at Glam's and came back uh, full of the mysteries, which she said had considerably increased since the 13th Earl uh, came up and, and, and took her uh, and took his seat uh, and she is actually the one uh, who, who uh, put in into uh, on the record the other one other story I haven't mentioned so far which is the the wife of the 13th Earl uh, went to him at some point after 1865 and begged him again you know as wives are supposed to do in dams to tell her the secret and he responded um, my dearest you know how often we've joked over the secret room and the family mystery well I've been into the room I have heard the secret, and if you wish to please me, you will never mention the subject again. So the story gets lost sometime around about 1900, and as I mentioned earlier, one usually given reason for this is it's just not so necessary to keep the secret anymore. The monster has died, and uh, one of the interesting stories that appears very contemporaneously actually was found in the New York Tribune, um, which published a story, I think it was in 1904, pointing out that the castle had been put up for rent, uh, and that the family were therefore moving out and allowing someone else to move into it at some gigantic rent, and that this must mean that the story was an end, that the monster had died, and that it was you know there was no risk of letting a bunch of strangers loose unsupervised in the castle for you know anything up to a year because there was simply no nothing any longer to find. So that's the first time that this was put into to common parlance. Um, Wentworth Day, who as I mentioned, wrote a book about the Queen Mother's family in the 1960s, talked to. Uh, the Bose Lions, who were then, you know, the Earl and his family around about that time. The Earl then said, you know, he knew absolutely nothing about the story. He had, when he had come to his majority, in other words, he had not been initiated into it. So at some point between 1900 and 1960, the idea of initiating the heirs into it had, had failed, uh, had ceased. And again, he presumed, he told Wentworth Day, this was because there was no secret to communicate and that it must have been lost sometime between the 1920s or maybe in the war when one of his uh, uncles was killed and maybe he'd been the last initiate and hadn't, hadn't passed it on. Um, and so there are, you know, there are, there are reasons given for this, but perhaps in the final end of the wrap-up, I mean, the one other thing I should definitely talk a tiny bit about is the rather remarkable diary of another nobleman, um, the Earl of Crawford, who in 1905 went to stay with the Bowes Lion family. So this is just at the time when the idea is beginning to circulate that the mystery has come to an end, but it's still pretty much alive at that point. And he wrote an absolutely fascinating diary entry. He made several very key points about the, the Bose Lions. He said, you know, firstly, I've, I'm really amazed at how little the family knows about their own history, which is an odd kind of a thing to say about a family that's involved with a century-old mystery. And he, he pointed out that the child of the family, who was the heir at that point, who was about six, had asked about this portrait on the wall and nobody knew who it was, but it turned out to be his own grandmother. So he's giving the impression that actually they're not a family who are that steeped in family tradition. But he said, you know, they're also, you know, they love to make their guests, you know, feel 
you know, that it's an amazing place that they're staying at. They're constantly full of stories. And he got the impression they kind of make up stories to meet the expectations and the character of the guests. He also talked a little bit about the, the family love of, of family theatricals and, and putting on plays and so on. So overall, you know, he's giving the impression that, you know, they actually quite like the story and they like telling it and they like spooking people with it. And at the end of this diary entry, which, as I say, is written in 1905, you know, he says something which I think is very interesting and in a sense sort of acts as a sign off for this whole story, which is, you know, I quickly realised that the secret of Glam's is that there is no secret. Mm. <laughs> yes. Well said. Yeah. Well, what about today? What's the, the status of Glam's today? It's open to the public, isn't it? It is. I mean, it is still the sort of ancestral home of the Bose Lion family. Um, I think typically, uh, as is the case with many of these sort of very old, very large, very expensive to maintain buildings, they kind of now live in a, a small apartment in one wing and, you know, they make enough money to keep the estate going by letting people in. So absolutely, you can go there, you can talk to the tour guide and I have no doubt all the tour guides there are fully versed in precisely the stories I've just told you and be glad <laughs> to drop a few spooky uh, tales in your ear. Um, so it's there, it is absolutely still beautiful, but it absolutely does not have the kind of spooky vibe that Walter Scott would have found when he was one of only about three people in the whole building in 1790. Right, yeah, it, was, it sounds a lot like uh, the Winchester Mystery House here in, uh, in California. Good. Uh, where they're just retelling the stories. And, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that they're doing that. I'm sure that's a draw card for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, apparently so. <laughs> they seem to be making a brisk business of it, uh, even with that movie's lack of success. So so I guess in, in conclusion, uh, we should ask, what are you working on next? What's going on? What's, what mysteries are you digging in these days? And. And you know, as you know, I'm a historian and I write stuff um, which is kind of, you know, history, mystery stuff. So uh, that, that's really where the focus is. I'm working. I mean, I suppose the main thing I'm working on now, which I should come back and talk to you sometimes, it's pretty much up the street and quite fascinating. And I have found a whole load of new stuff that nobody knows about is sin eating. Ooh, sin eating being the concept that um, particularly... Um, in Wales in the early modern period when someone dies you have this weird quasi-religious ceremony where you put a piece uh, um, you put a, a bowl sorry uh, with some bread and some salt on the corpse's chest you call the local sin eater who is this sort of disreputable uh, person who lives in a hovel in the woods usually and is an actual outcast from society he comes along he sort of mutters some sort of ritual, eats the bread and salt, and by doing so, takes on all of the sins of the deceased so that the sin, the, the person's spirit can go to heaven. But of course, the sin is left behind on earth with burdened by this ever greater sort of wedges and wedges of all these sort of mortal sins that the various people he's he's helped have um, have descended upon his shoulders. So I've been looking into that, that and the idea, the idea and how it came about and how historic it actually is. So yeah, that's that's a that's a that's, that's a Welsh. Thing. You say this a, well. a Welsh tradition? Welsh tradition. Because yeah. I, I know they had it here in rural America too. Yeah, I mean mm. immigrants. I mean Appalachia. Yeah, Appalachia, exactly. It, it's it's uh, my family's uh, from Appalachia in uh, in the in the North Georgia mountains. Uh, so yeah, it was around here, around these parts. Uh, yeah, well, we could have a good conversation, Blake. Yeah, in a few months I've wrapped it up, uh, but I, I've been working on that for the last year. 
Oh, and I get I would be uh, I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't say uh, any progress on a Spring Hill Jack book because I know a lot of my listeners want one. <laughs> and 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 I owe the world a couple of books myself, and I know Karen's working on one, so I get it. I am. I get it. I feel like I'm sticking a pin in a wound, right? So I. I but... Well, you are to a certain extent, but you know, I have actually got to the point in my life where I've begun to think if I don't get on with it now, I might never actually finish it. Um, I so I came on and talked about that two years ago. Since then, um, there were two parts of the book. There's a calendar of sources, uh, which is everything that's been said about Spring Hill Jack at the time, going way back. And I, I'm about a week of concentrated work from finishing that. When I've done that, I'll be able to sit down and actually write my contribution, which is a long essay about where I think all of this fits together. So I have eight or nine worthy contributors who are all giving me these massive piles of research on various aspects of the story. I've got experts on, um, you know, Victorian press, on folklore, on genealogy. Um, I've got people who've looked at the story as it existed in Australia, in the Americas, um, and in Czechoslovakia. And all of this is just sitting waiting for me to edit it and finish my own my own work. So I'm hoping, mm-hmm. seriously hoping, that by the end of next year, it will be done and published. But I hate promising people this because I always miss my own deadlines. Uh, we understand. Absolutely. Thank you for not uh, screaming uh, too loud when we ah. ask. Because I, I would... Oh, if somebody asks me how we, my book, yeah, I mean, no, I just I feel so bad even asking, but it, we do get questions about it a lot because, and, and I, no, want, no. I want to read That's it. That's an so, update. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, so do I. When it's a life's work, it's never been, <laughs> and especially when you kind of just generate stuff in the way that I do, um, that's a lot of stuff to get through. And my problem is that you know I start off thinking it'd be like a forty thousand word essay, which is in itself like a novella, but by mm. now. It's going to be at least 130,000 words, which is a book when it's writing. My contribution, and the entire thing will now have to be in at least two volumes. So, I mean, the best thing we can say about this is I am going to sort of set a new standard for thoroughness of 14 research when this thing finally comes out. That is my current goal. So it, this might be Fantastic. two full bottles of absinthe to get through, but my Victorian parlor is standing by. So. <laughs> Uh, well Mike thank you so much for joining us again and we'll have to have you back on again soon certainly to talk about sin eating and other things absolutely I would love to do that and I've had a blast thank you thank you very much I'm sorry we had to cut this so short because I believe we could talk for another 30 minutes easy right (laughs) this is still on the hour anyway so yeah but it'll uh, leave leave them wanting more that's that's what they say that's what they say All right. thanks a lot thank you guys monster dog You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with historian and author Mike Dash. A link to his research on Glam's Castle and his many books will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want their opinions, you might try checking out their magazine or apps. If you're going to be in Frankfort, Kentucky this September, you can catch me speaking at the second annual CryptidCon on the weekend of September 9th and 10th. This will be at the Capitol Plaza Hotel in Frankfort, and you can get tickets at CryptidCon.com. They've got quite a lineup of cryptozoology and UFO guests this year, including Cliff and Bobo from Finding Bigfoot, Linda Godfrey of Dogman fame, Bob Gimlin, one half of the Patterson-Gimlin film team, Seth Breedlove of Small Town Monsters, and many more. And, of course, me, Blake Smith, host of Monster Talk, where I'll be talking about the Kelly Hopkinsville Kentucky Goblins right there in Kentucky. I hope to see you there.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as the donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018. PsyCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want PsyCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Cybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening.
Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit Skeptic.com to sign up. 